Section 8 of The Encantadas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Encantadas by Herman Melville. Sketch 8th. Norfolk Isle and the Chola Widow. At last they in an island did espy a seemly woman sitting by the shore, that with great sorrow and sad agony seemed some great misfortune to deplore, and loud to them for succor called evermore. Black his eye as the midnight sky, white his neck as the driven snow, red his cheek as the morning light, cold he lies in the ground below. My love is dead, gone to his deathbed, yes, all under the cactus tree. Each lonely scene shall thee restore, for thee the tear be duly shed. Beloved till life can charm no more, and mourned till pity's self be dead. Far to the northeast of Charles's Isle, sequestered from the rest, lies Norfolk Isle, and however insignificant to most voyagers, to me, through sympathy, that lone island has become a spot made sacred by the strangest trials of humanity. It was my first visit to the Encantadas. Two days had been spent ashore in hunting tortoises. There was not time to capture many, so on the third afternoon we loosed our sails. We were just in the act of getting under way, the uprooted anchor yet suspended and invisibly swaying beneath the wave as the good ship gradually turned her heel to leave the isle behind, when the seaman who heaved with me at the windlass paused suddenly and directed my attention to something moving on the land, not along the beach, but somewhat back, fluttering from a height. In view of the sequel of this little story, be it here narrated how it came to pass, that an object which partly from its being so small was quite lost to every other man on board still caught the eye of my handspike companion. The rest of the crew, myself included, merely stood up to our spikes in heaving, whereas unwontedly exhilarated at every turn of the ponderous windlass, my belted comrade leaped atop of it with might and main, giving a downward thew, perpendicular heave his raised eye bent in cheery animation upon the slowing receding shore. Being high lifted above all others was the reason he perceived the object, otherwise unperceivable. And this elevation of his eye was owing to the elevation of his spirits, and this again, for truth must out, to a dram of Peruvian pisco, in guerdon for some kindness done, secretly administered to him that morning by our mulatto steward. Now, certainly Pisco does a deal of mischief in the world. Yet, seeing that, in the present case, it was the means, though indirect, of rescuing a human being from the most dreadful fate, must we not also needs admit that sometimes Pisco does a deal of good? Glancing across the water in the direction pointed out, I saw some white thing hanging from an inland rock, perhaps half a mile from the sea. It is a bird, a white-winged bird, perhaps a—no, it, it, it is a handkerchief. 
"'I, a handkerchief,' echoed my comrade, "'and with a louder shout apprised the captain. "'Quickly now, like the running out and training of a great gun, "'the long cabin spyglass was thrust through the mizzen rigging "'from the high platform of the poop, "'whereupon a human figure was plainly seen upon the inland rock, "'eagerly waving towards us what seemed to be the handkerchief.' Our captain was a prompt good fellow. Dropping the glass, he lustily ran forward, ordering the anchor to be dropped again, hands to stand by a boat, and lower away. In a half-hour's time the swift boat returned. It went with six and came with seven, and the seventh was a woman. It is not artistic heartlessness, but I wish I could but draw in crayons. For this woman was a most touching sight, and crayons tracing softly melancholy lines would best depict the mournful image of the dark damasked Chola widow. Her story was soon told, and though given in her own strange language, was as quickly understood. For our captain, from long trading on the Chilean coast, was well versed in the Spanish. A cholo, or half-breed Indian woman of Paita in Peru, three years gone by with her young new-wedded husband Felipe, of pure Castilian blood, and her one only Indian brother Trujil, Unia had taken passage on the main in a French whaler, commanded by a joyous man, which vessel bound to the cruising grounds beyond the enchanted isles proposed passing close by their vicinity. The object of the little party was to procure tortoise oil, a fluid which, for its great purity and delicacy, is held in high estimation wherever known, and it is well known all along this part of the Pacific coast. With a chest of clothes, tools, cooking utensils, a rude apparatus for trying out the oil, some casks of biscuit and other things, not omitting two favorite dogs, of which faithful animal all the cholos are very fond, Unia and her companions were safely landed at their chosen place. The Frenchman, according to the contract made ere sailing, engaged to take them off upon returning from a four-month's cruise in the westward seas, which interval the three adventurers deemed quite sufficient for their purposes. On the isle's lone beach they paid him in silver for their passage out, the stranger having declined to carry them at all except upon that condition, though willing to take every means to ensure the due fulfillment of his promise. Felipe had striven hard to have this payment put off to the period of the ship's return, but in vain. Still they thought they had, in another way, ample pledge of the good faith of the Frenchman. It was arranged that the expenses of the passage home should not be payable in silver, but in tortoises, one hundred tortoises ready captured to the returning captain's hand. These the cholos meant to secure after their own work was done, against the probable time of the Frenchman's coming back, and no doubt and prospect already felt that in those hundred tortoises, now somewhere ranging the isle's interior, they possessed one hundred hostages. Enough. The vessel sailed. The gazing three on shore answered the loud glee of the singing crew, and ere evening the French craft was hull down in the distant sea, its masts three faintest lines which quickly faded from Unia's eye. The stranger had given a blithesome promise and anchored it with oaths, 
but oaths and anchors equally will drag. Naught else abides on fickle earth but unkept promises of joy. Contrary winds from out unstable skies, or contrary moods of his more varying mind, or shipwreck and sudden death in solitary waves, whatever was the cause, the blithe stranger never was seen again. Yet, however dire a calamity was here in store, misgivings of it, ere due time, never disturbed the cholo's busy mind, now all intent upon the toilsome matter which had brought them hither. Nay, by swift doom coming like the thief at night, ere seven weeks went by, two of the little party were removed from all anxieties of land or sea. No more they sought to gaze with feverish fear, or still more feverish hope, beyond the present's horizon line, but into the furthest future their own silent spirits sailed. By persevering labor beneath that burning sun, Felipe and Trujillo had brought down to their hut many scores of tortoises, and tried out the oil, when, elated with their good success, and to reward themselves for such hard work, they, too hastily, made a catamaran, or Indian raft, much used on the Spanish main, and merrily started on a fishing trip, just without a long reef, with many jagged gaps, running parallel with the shore, about half a mile from it. By some bad tide or hap, or natural negligence of joyfulness, for though they could not be heard, yet by their gestures they seemed singing at the time, forced in deep water against that iron bar, the ill-made catamaran was overset, and came all to pieces. When dashed by broad-chested swells between their broken logs and the sharp teeth of the reef, both adventurers perished before Unia's eyes. Before Unia's eyes they sank. The real woe of this event passed before her sight as some sham tragedy on the stage. She was seated on a rude bower among the withered thickets, crowning a lofty cliff, a little back from the beach. The thickets were so disposed that, in looking upon the sea at large, she peered out from among the branches as from the lattice of a high balcony. But upon the day we speak of here, the better to watch the adventure of those two hearts she loved, Unia had withdrawn the branches to one side, and held them so. They formed an oval frame through which the bluely boundless sea rolled like a painted one. And there the invisible painter painted to her view the wave-tossed and disjointed raft, its once level logs slantingly upheaved, as raking masts, and the four struggling arms indistinguishable among them. And then all subsided into smooth-flowing creamy waters, slowly drifting the splintered wreck, while first and last no sound of any sort was heard. Death in a silent picture a dream of the eye, such vanishing shapes as the mirage shows. So instant was the scene, so trance-like its mild pictorial effect, so distant from her blasted bower and her common sense of things, that Unia gazed and gazed, nor raised a finger or a wail. But as good to sit thus dumb, in stupors staring on that dumb show, for all that otherwise might be done, with half a mile of sea between, how could her two enchanted arms aid those four faded ones? The distance long, the time one sand, 
after the lightning is beheld, what fool shall stay the thunderbolt? Felipe's body was washed ashore, but Trujil's never came, only his gay, braided hat of golden straw, that same sunflower thing he waved to her, pushing from the strand, and now, to the last gallant, it still saluted her. But Felipe's body floated to the marge, with one arm encirclingly outstretched, lock-jawed in grim death, the lover-husband softly clasped his bride, true to her even in death's dream. Ah, heaven, when man thus keeps his faith, wilt thou be faithless who created the faithful one? But they cannot break faith who never plighted it. It needs not to be said what nameless misery now wrapped the lonely widow. In telling her own story she passed this almost entirely over, simply recounting the event. Construe the comment of her features as you might, from her mere words little would you have weaned that Unia was herself the heroine of her tale. But not thus did she defraud us of our tears. All hearts bled that grief could be so brave. She but showed us her soul's lid, and the strange ciphers thereon engraved. All within, with pride's timidity, was withheld. Yet was there one exception— Holding out her small olive hand before her captain, she said in mild and slowest Spanish, Senor, I buried him. Then paused, struggled as against the writhed coilings of a snake, and, cringing suddenly, leaped up, repeating in impassioned pain, I buried him, my life, my soul. Doubtless it was by half-unconscious automatic motions of her hands that this heavy-hearted one performed the final office for Felipe, and planted a rude cross of withered sticks, no green ones might be had, at the head of that lonely grave, where rested now in lasting uncomplaint and quiet haven he whom untranquil seas had overthrown. But some dull sense of another body that should be interred of another cross that should hallow another grave, unmade as yet, some dull anxiety and pain touching her undiscovered brother, now haunted the oppressed Unia. Her hands, fresh from the burial earth, she slowly went back to the beach, with unshaped purposes wandering there, her spellbound eye bent upon the incessant waves. But they bore nothing to her but a dirge, which maddened her to think that murderers should mourn. As time went by, and these things came less dreamingly to her mind, the strong persuasions of her Romish faith, which sets peculiar store by consecrated urns, prompted her to resume, in waking earnest, that pious search which had but been begun as in somnambulism. Day after day, week after week, she trod the cindery beach, till at length a double motive edged every eager glance. With equal longing she now looked for the living and the dead, the brother and the captain, alike vanished, never to return. Little accurate note of time had Unia taken under such emotions as were hers, and little, outside herself, served for calendar or dial. As to poor Crusoe, in the selfsame sea, no saint's bell pealed forth the lapse of week or month, each day went by unchallenged, 
No chanticleer announced those sultry dawns, no lowing herds those poisonous nights. All wonted and steadily recurring sounds, human or humanized by sweet fellowship with man, but one stirred that torrid trance, the cry of dogs. Save which naught but the rolling sea invaded it, an all-pervading monotone. And to the widow, that was the least loved voice she could have heard. No wonder that her thoughts now wandered to the unreturning ship, and were beaten back again. The hope against hope so struggled in her soul, that at length she desperately said, Not yet, not yet. My foolish heart runs on too fast. So she forced patience for some further weeks. But to those whom earth's sure indraft draws, patience or impatience is still the same. Unia now sought to settle precisely in her mind to an hour how long it was since the ship had sailed, and then, with the same precision, how long a space remained to pass. But this proved impossible. What present day or month it was she could not say. Time was her labyrinth, in which Unia was entirely lost. And now follows. Against my own purposes a pause descends upon me here. One knows not whether nature doth not impose some secrecy upon him who has been privy to certain things. At least it is to be doubted whether it be good to blazon such. If some books are deemed most baneful and their sale forbid, how, then, with deadlier facts, not dreams of doting men? Those whom books will hurt will not be proof against events. Events, not books, should be forbid. But in all things man sows upon the wind, which bloweth just there whither it listeth, for ill or good man cannot know. Often ill comes from the good, as good from ill. When Unia Dire sight it is to see some silken beast long dally with a golden lizard ere she devour. More terrible to see how feline fate will sometimes dally with a human soul, and by a nameless magic make it repulse a sane despair with a hope which is but mad. Unwittingly I imp this cat-like thing, sporting with the heart of him who reads. For if he feel not, he reads in vain. The ship sails this day, to-day, at last said Unia to herself. This gives me certain time to stand on. Without certainty, I go mad. In loose ignorance I have hoped and hoped. Now, in firm knowledge, I will but wait. Now I live and no longer perish in bewilderings. Holy Virgin, aid me. Thou wilt waft back the ship. O oh, past length of weary weeks, all to be dragged over, to buy the certainty of to-day, I freely give ye, though I tear ye from me. As mariners, tossed in tempest on some desolate ledge, patch them a boat out of the remnants of their vessel's wreck, and launch it in the self-same waves, see here Unia, this lone shipwrecked soul, out of treachery invoking trust. Humanity, though strong thing, I worship thee, not in the laureled victor, but in this vanquished one. 
Truly, Unia leaned upon a reed, a real one, no metaphor, a real eastern reed. A piece of hollow cane drifted from unknown isles and found upon the beach, its once jagged ends rubbed smoothly, even as by sandpaper, its golden glazing gone. Long ground between the sea and land, upper and nether stone, the unvarnished substance was filed bare, and wore another polish now, one with itself, the polish of its agony. Circular lines at intervals cut all round this surface, divided it into six panels of unequal length. In the first were scored the days, each tenth one marked by a longer and deeper notch. The second was scored for the number of sea-fowl eggs for sustenance, picked out from the rocky nests. The third, how many fish had been caught from the shore. The fourth, how many small tortoises found inland. The fifth, how many days of sun. The sixth, of clouds. Which last of the two was the greater one? Long night of busy numbering, misery's mathematics to weary her too wakeful soul to sleep. Yet sleep for that was none. The panel of the days was deeply worn, the long tenth notches half effaced, as alphabets of the blind. Ten thousand times the longing widow had traced her finger over the bamboo, dull flute which played on, gave no sound, as if counting birds flown by in air would hasten tortoises creeping through the woods. After the one hundred and eightieth day no further mark was seen. That last one was the faintest, as the first the deepest. There were more days, said our captain, many, many more. Why did you not go on and notch them too, Unia? Senor, ask me not. And meantime, did no other vessel pass the isle? Nay, senor, but... You do not speak. But what, Unia? Ask me not, senor. You saw ships pass far away. You waved to them. They passed on. Was that it, Unia? Senor, be it as you say. Braced against her woe, Unia would not, durst not trust the weakness of her tongue. Then, when our captain asked whether any whale-boats had, But no, I will not file this thing complete for scoffing souls, to quote, and call it firm proof upon their side. The half shall here remain untold. Those two unnamed events which befell Unia on this isle, let them abide between her and her God. In nature, as in law, it may be libelous to speak some truths. Still, how it was that, although our vessel had lain three days anchored nigh the isle, its one human tenant should not have discovered us till just upon the point of sailing, never to revisit so lone and far a spot, this needs explaining ere the sequel come. The place where the French captain had landed the little party was on the further and opposite end of the isle. There, too, it was that they had afterwards built their hut. Nor did the widow in her solitude desert the spot where her loved ones had dwelt with her, and where the dearest of the twain now slept his last long sleep, and all her plaints awaked him not, and he of husbands the most faithful during life. Now, 
high broken land rises between the opposite extremities of the isle. A ship anchored at one side is invisible from the other. Neither is the isle so small, but a considerable company might wander for days through the wilderness of one side, and never be seen, or their hallows heard, by any stranger holding aloof on the other. Hence Unia, who naturally associated the possible coming of ships with her own part of the isle, might to the end have remained quite ignorant of the presence of our vessel, were it not for a mysterious presentment, borne to her, so our mariners averred, by this isle's enchanted air. Nor did the widow's answer undo the thought. "'How did you come to cross the isle this morning, then, Unia?' said our captain. "'Senor, something came flitting by me. It touched my cheek. My heart, senor.' "'What do you say, Unia?' "'I have said, senor, something came through the air.' "'It was a narrow chance, for when in crossing the isle Unia gained the highland in the centre. She must then for the first have perceived our masts, and also marked that their sails were being loosed, perhaps even heard the echoing chorus of the windless song. The strange ship was about to sail, and she behind. With all haste, she now descends the height on the hither side, but soon loses sight of the ship among the sunken jungles at the mountain's base. She struggles on through the withered branches which seek at every step to bar her path, till she comes to the isolated rock still some way from the water. This she climbs to reassure herself. The ship is still in plainest sight, but now, worn out with over-tension, Unia all but faints. She fears to step down from her giddy perch. She is fain to pause, there where she is, and as a last resort catches the turban from her head, unfurls, and waves it over the jungles towards us. During the telling of her story, the mariners formed a voiceless circle round Unia and the captain, and when at length the word was given to man the fastest boat and pull round to the isle's thither side, to bring away Unia's chest and the tortoise oil, such alacrity of both cheery and sad obedience seldom before was seen. Little ado was made. Already the anchor had been recommitted to the bottom, and the ship swung calmly to it. But Unia insisted upon accompanying the boat as indispensable pilot to her hidden hut. So, being refreshed with the best the steward could supply, she started with us. Nor did ever any wife of the most famous admiral in her husband's barge receive more silent reverence of respect than poor Unia from this boat's crew. Rounding many a vitreous cape and bluff, in two hours' time we shot inside the fatal reef, wound into a secret cove, looked up along a green, many-gabled lava wall, and saw the island's solitary dwelling. It hung upon an impending cliff, sheltered on two sides by tangled thickets and half-screened from view in front by juttings of the rude stairway, which climbed the precipice from the sea. Built of canes, it was thatched with long, mildewed grass. It seemed an abandoned hayrick, whose haymakers were now no more. The roof inclined but one way, the eaves coming to within two feet of the ground, and here was a simple apparatus to collect the dews, 
or rather doubly distilled and finest winnowed rains, which, in mercy or in mockery, the night skies sometimes drop upon these blighted encantadas. All along beneath the eaves, a spotted sheet, quite weather-stained, was spread, pinned to short upright stakes set in the shallow sand. A small clinker, thrown into the cloth, weighed its middle down, thereby straining all moisture into a calabash placed below. This vessel supplied each drop of water ever drunk upon the isle by the cholos. Unia told us the calabash would sometimes, but not often, be half-filled overnight. It held six quarts, perhaps. But, said she, we were used to thirst. At Sandy Paita, where I live, no shower from heaven ever fell. All the water there is brought on mules from the inland vales. Tied among the thickets were some twenty moaning tortoises, supplying Unia's lonely larder, while hundreds of vast tableted black bucklers, like displaced shattered tombstones of dark slate, were also scattered round. These were the skeleton backs of those great tortoises from which Felipe and Trujil had made their precious oil. Several large calabashes and two goodly kegs were filled with it. In a pot nearby were the caked crusts of a quantity which had been permitted to evaporate. They meant to have strained it off next day, said Unia, as she turned aside. I forgot to mention the most singular sight of all, though the first that greeted us after landing. Some ten small, soft-haired, ringleted dogs of a beautiful breed, peculiar to Peru, set up a concert of glad welcomings when we gained the beach, which was responded to by Unia. Some of these dogs had, since her widowhood, been born upon the isle, the progeny of the two brought from Paita. Owing to the jagged steeps and pitfalls, tortuous thickets, sunken clefts, and perilous intricacies of all sorts in the interior, Unia, admonished by the loss of one favorite among them, never allowed these delicate creatures to follow her in her occasional bird's-nest climbs and other wanderings, so that, through long habitation, they offered not to follow, when that morning she crossed the land and her own soul was then too full of other things to heed their lingering behind. Yet, all along, she had so clung to them that, besides what moisture they lapped up at early daybreak from the small scoop-holes among the adjacent rocks, she had shared the dew of her calabash among them, never laying by any considerable store against those prolonged and utter droughts which, in some disastrous seasons, warp these isles. Having pointed out, at our desire, what few things she would like transported to the ship, her chest, the oil, not omitting the live tortoises which she intended for a grateful present to our captain, we immediately set to work, carrying them to the boat down the long, sloping stair of deeply shadowed rock. While my comrades were thus employed, I looked, and Unia had disappeared. It was not curiosity alone, but it seems to me something different mingled with it, which prompted me to drop my tortoise and once more gaze slowly around. I remembered the husband buried by Unia's hands. A narrow pathway led into a dense part of the thickets. Following it through many mazes, I came out upon a small, round, open space, deeply chambered there. The mound rose in the middle. 
a bare heap of finest sand like that unverdered heap found at the bottom of an hourglass run out at its head stood the cross of withered sticks the dry peeled bark still fraying from it its transverse limb tied up with rope and forlornly a droop in the silent air unia was partly prostrate upon the grave her dark head bowed and lost in her long loosened indian hair her hands extended to the cross-foot with a little brass crucifix clasped between a crucifix worn featureless like an ancient graven knocker long plied in vain she did not see me and i made no noise but slid aside and left the spot a few moments ere all was ready for our going she reappeared among us i looked into her eyes but saw no tear there was something which seemed strangely haughty in her air and yet it was the air of woe a spanish and an indian grief which would not visibly lament pride's height in vain abased to proneness on the rack nature's pride subduing nature's torture like pages the small and silken dogs surrounded her as she slowly descended towards the beach she caught the two most eager creatures in her arms mia tita mia tomotita and fondling them inquired how many could we take on board the mate commanded the boat's crew not a hard-hearted man but his way of life had been such that in most things even in the smallest simple utility was his leading motive we cannot take them all unia our supplies are short the winds are unreliable we may be a good many days going to tombes so take those you have unia but no more she was in the boat the oarsmen too were seated all save one who stood ready to push off and then spring himself with the sagacity of their race the dogs now seemed aware that they were in the very instant of being deserted upon a barren strand the gunwales of the boat were high its prow presented inland was lifted so owing to the water which they seemed instinctively to shun the dogs could not well leap into the little craft but their busy paws hard scraped the prow as it had been some farmer's door shutting them out from shelter in a winter storm a clamorous agony of alarm they did not howl or whine they all but spoke push off give way cried the mate the boat gave one heavy drag and lurch and next moment shot swiftly from the beach turned on her heel and sped the dogs ran howling along the water's marge now pausing to gaze at the flying boat then motioning as if to leap in chase but mysteriously withheld themselves and again ran howling along the beach had they been human beings hardly would they have more vividly inspired the sense of desolation the oars were plied as confederate feathers of two wings no one spoke i looked back upon the beach and then upon unia but her face was set in a stern dusky calm the dogs crouching in her lap vainly licked her rigid hands she never looked behind her but sat motionless till we turned a promontory of the coast and lost all sights and sounds astern she seemed as one who having experienced the sharpest of mortal pangs was henceforth content to have all lesser heartstrings riven one by one to unia 
pain seemed so necessary that pain in other beings, though by love and sympathy made her own, was unrepiningly to be borne. A heart of yearning in a frame of steel, a heart of earthly yearning, frozen by the frost which falleth from the sky. The sequel is soon told. After a long passage, vexed by calms and baffling winds, we made the little port of Tombes in Peru, there to recruit the ship. Paita was not very distant. Our captain sold the tortoise oil to a Tombes merchant, and adding to the silver a contribution from all hands, gave it to our silent passenger, who knew not what the mariners had done. The last scene of lone Unia, she was passing into Paita town, riding upon a small gray ass, and before her, on the ass's shoulders, she eyed the jointed workings of the beast's armorial cross. End of Sketch 8th Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista